start recording because this conversation's very much interesting me um playing games with internet strangers i <laughs> tried to be like a cool kid and i downloaded among us on my phone because i kept watching youtube videos of people playing among us and it looked like so much fun what is that um turns out i'm very bad at it oh. um it's like a game that all the cool kids are playing now where you're like this little guy and then um you're in like a crew of people um and one like one or two people as an imposter so if you're not if you're just like a regular crew person you're like on the ship that's a kind of like a maze Uh but um you're like given tasks to do so like your objective is to do the tasks so like the ship doesn't blow up or something um but the imposter goes around and pretends to be a crew member, and then they try to kill people. And then everybody, like, if you find a dead body, you can say, like, oh, I found a dead body, and then everyone's trying to talk about who it is. And the one time I was the imposter, I, like, thought that I cornered a person, and I was like, oh, murdering them. Yes, like, I did it. And then someone, like, walked right up and saw it, and they were like, yeah, she's the imposter. And I was like, oh, tartar sauce. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I wouldn't be good at that. Jarrell says the games that I play aren't fun. Um, he's like, you, you only play games where like, you have to like use your brain. Cause I, I, um, have the Lumosity app and it's all like brain games and I'm like, it excites mm-hmm. me. <laughs> so. Yeah. See, I like games that are luck based oh, okay. because I don't know it. I don't like losing and feeling like it's my fault i feel you uh-huh. yeah although uno uno's a, a great one yeah. um i played it a lot with the the kids i used to work mm-hmm. with um and i thought i was pretty good at it i like you like realize you can develop like a skill to uno like there's things yeah. that you can do yeah um there's a strategy that just, you can have yeah i yeah i also, I also learned so many uno. card games but i oh. forgot them all <laughs> um i like we my family we used to play like a ton of card games like we'd be up to like four in the morning like (laughs) playing card games and i don't remember any of them like it's so weird it just doesn't exist uh yeah i don't i think i learned how to play rummy Mm. or something i think rummy cube is like rummy but it's you like oh. they're little tile like cube pieces is actually you rummy brought me to target thing? to buy <laughs> um i don't i think so yeah isn't that rummy Jim rummy isn't that the same thing yeah isn't there a day i dropped you off at target that one time right yeah or like you brought me to target to buy rummy cube because i was like i really need this game back in my life <laughs> I didn't know that you were buying the game. But well, Ollie, I personally that- hate games pretty it, much. Um, really? But well, yeah, because I grew up in a family, a larger family. Oh, although yeah. your family is pretty big, yeah. but um, I just feel like well, my mom was like really into games and like wanted us all to play games <laughs> together. But like 
one of my sisters was like the worst sore loser ever and then bringing my little brother into it he's just like incredibly lucky and like would just win everything (laughs) um and it just was like not enjoyable for me because it always ended in like fights (laughs) so i'm just like over it i don't like need any games in my life anymore we so um, like it was just card games for us and like if anyone kept, like, my dad would just be like, another hand, another game, another game. <laughs> so we'd be up, like, all night uh, playing till, like everyone, till everyone got to win. Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah, but uh, Jarrell's family, they play games sometimes. Jarrell really likes to play um, Jenga. And, like, me and his dad, <laughs> me and his dad are, like, super competitive when we play Jenga. And, like, his dad makes, does, like, the most ridiculous, like, like, moves to make it unstable for, like, the next person. And he just, like, the whole time he's moving, he goes, hands like a surgeon, hands like a surgeon. Like, the entire time. Oh, my time. God. Just, That's like, too funny. <laughs> have you ever played giant Jenga? Uh, no, but Jarrell wants it. I'm like, ain't nobody spending We have that at my it. house. But it terrifies me. Really? Because it could fall on you. It's too big. Yes. It, like, I don't know. It just startles me. I feel like I'm going to get crushed under um, (laughs) a bunch of, like, wooden sticks. It'll, I'm sure it would be fun. And it wouldn't hurt I'm sure it wouldn't hurt you greatly. But still, it's, like, it's too much for me. I am not. There used to be, like, um a bar in college that people would go to to play giant jenga all i can think now that we're living in like this pandemic world of how is how unsanitary that probably was do you know how unsanitary everything at the bar was like the second you walked in it was just like germs like think about how many people work in a restaurant and don't wash their hands regularly and like the lime the lemon or lime slices apparently are full and from gilmore girls you learned about the urine mints yeah (laughs) yeah i um i just went to like a park the other day and i was gonna sit down at a bench and like a like first of all i'm the only person in the park with a mask and i'm nowhere near anyone else everyone is like no masks on as if cases aren't rising and i'm like um, being so intense about it, I like have like Lysol wipes, and I'm like wiping everything down before I sit down. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, gosh. I don't know. I just, I'm like, I don't One know how I wasn't people. doing this before. Well, I was also, no, but I agree. I was also with Brooke, and I'm like, well, she's like, you know, yeah. Well, now to everyone, now that we're behind, you'll be listening to this like the week after, but uh, we're about to. Thanksgiving is tomorrow at the time of this recording. So, you know, I can't wait for everyone to go see their families and spread a bunch of coronavirus and just things will be generally terrible. Um, Please don't do that, guys. Wear your mask, people. (laughs) Socially distance. I am just staying at home and eating my $13 field roast um, fake meat block that is currently in my freezer that I probably should take out to defrost at some point tonight. I am currently defrosting a turkey. I'm like going all out cooking everything. Um it'll be fun. That's amazing. So totally. I know um, I'm I'm kind of excited. 
<laughs> Thanksgiving is my fun. is like the only holiday that I care about. Like I, I know other people like Christmas is a big deal, and you know a lot of people try to erase Thanksgiving and like start celebrating Christmas on November first. Um, but no, Thanksgiving is my holiday. Makes me very excited. It's good, but Christmas is better because Christmas is like Thanksgiving, but also presents. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Well, first of all, everyone, uh, it is, you know, almost Thanksgiving at the time we're recording this. So as a post-Thanksgiving gift, I would really appreciate if you all could go write us a review on iTunes and then we'll donate a dollar to the National Center for Victims of Crime. Um, It is a good cause and will make us feel happy so just go do it right now yeah and on that note um today we we decided last week that we were going to do a bit of a palate cleanser because we've been doing a lot of like mothers murdering children or like children dying dying, cases you know yeah just you know general things that we don't enjoy very much talking about, but still very interesting, but, um, you know, kind of a downer. So we decided to do another law-abiding ladies episode where we talk about women who have done the opposite of committing crimes, so have contributed in some way to the field of law enforcement or, um, you know, just pot, like, what's the word I'm looking for, made positive contributions that helped prevent crime or um, protect people, you know, those things. Do you feel like that was a good enough explanation? Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. Uh, we did a law enforcement episode um, in the past, or people, like, yeah, people who contributed to the field of, like, law enforcement or criminology and things like that, and so, yeah. Take two. Yeah, we did it before. Mm-hmm. We did it before. Um, I would have to go double check and see what episode number it was, but I did um, the woman who made little crime scenes out of dollhouses, and yeah. Natalie did the first black police woman police officer, and it was a really exciting episode. I thought it was good. It was one of my favorites looking back on it, so why not yeah. bring it back again? Every episode we do is my favorite, so... Oh, you're like that mom that's like, I don't have a favorite kid, but do you think that your parents have? Oh, I, yeah. Do you think your parents have favorites? Easily. My mom, my, my brother is one of them. (laughs) (laughs) My brother is my mom's favorite, hands down. Um, she, I say that to her all the time. She denies it, but I know the truth and I'm totally my dad's favorite. Like, come on, look at me. (laughs) Yes, I believe it. I have like a ranking system in my head for I feel like for my siblings and sometimes the ranks change but yeah I will say I think I am pretty high up in one of the rankings and pretty down low in the other 
solid. Just kidding. Solid. My parents like all of us. I mean, of course they like all their kids, but I do think it's, you know, it's reasonable. Um, I have been watching uh, The Crown, like the mm-hmm. most recent season, which has been infuriating, but um, they have like a scene between Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth where Prince Philip is like, or I guess Queen, somebody told Queen Elizabeth that she has like a favorite child and she was like appalled and was telling like Prince Philip this. And he's like, you don't have a, fa- of course you have a favorite kid. I have a favorite kid. Like, <laughs> um, And so she's like, well, I guess I need to have dinner with each kid separately to figure it out. <laughs> Doesn't um, she have corgis? Yeah. I'd be like, my favorite kids are my corgis. I'm pretty confident that there are people in this world who are like, the only kids I really care about are my dogs. Sorry, human children. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah i would say gary's my favorite child but she just bit me earlier so oh, she's yeah. not my favorite child right now not cool um all right look. i'm gonna tell her that santa's not gonna give her presents sorry <laughs> i'm getting off topic oh i just wanted to say quickly too that katie is also obsessed with um crown oh really the crown right now is really into royals and she like checked out books from the library about royals I so you guys should watch, talk like, to each other about shit. that <laughs> Since Becca doesn't want to be my friend, Katie, will you be my friend? Follow me on Instagram. We can talk. <laughs> I'm sure she. I'm sure she will. I'll let her know about the whole royals. We should do. Um, like, are there any like royal crimes or like crimes in the? I don't kind know. Of royal spectrum of things. Probably, but like, that. probably none in which they were prosecuted. You, you did Bloody Mary, which kind of. True. Yeah. True. Great. Well, I keep like changing the subject so we can get back to it. We can, uh, <laughs> I can start us off. Um, there wasn't a lot of information about my person. So just throwing that out there. Um, I do go off into some like other crime related tangents just to make sure everybody gets their, uh, you know, a little crime fix. But I think it turned out okay. <laughs> but um, sorry to disappoint. Um, So I did the case of Alaska P. Davidson. She was the first female FBI agent. Um, Like I was saying, there aren't too many details on Alaska's um, life in general and definitely not her early life. She was born in Warren, Ohio in 1868 to Mary Elizabeth and Warren Packard. So we do know that she only had three years of public school education. Her two brothers, James Ward Packard and William Dowd Packard, worked together to found the Packard Motor Car Company, which was acquired by General Motors in 1932. So, skipping ahead a lot in her life, because like I said, there's not very much information. On October 11th in 1922, Alaska became the first female special agent in the FBI. She was appointed by the director at the time, William Burns, and was granted the title of special investigator. Cool. They had specifically, I know, she's so cool. I'm like, just the name Alaska, honestly, I dig it. Also, like, you were born in Ohio, and your name's Alaska. I don't quite understand, but you know what? Good for you. Um, So, Alaska was specifically hired to work on the Mann Act. This was officially known as the White Slave Traffic Act. This law was passed by Congress in 1910. 
The author of the law, James Robert Mann, was an Illinois congressman. This law made it illegal to transport women across state lines for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery. Debauchery? (laughs) It was supposed to be debauchery, but I spelled it debauchery. Debauchery. What Natalie said. (laughs) Or... For any other immoral purpose. Um, so James intended to combat forced prostitution, but as I'm sure you noticed, this law was pretty broadly worded. So that will come into play later. Remember that fact. Um, in the early 20th century, there was white slavery hysteria. Um, More young single women were moving into the city and entering the workforce. They had more options than they had before, um, where they were pretty much bound to the traditional family-centered system. So the progressive era social reformists didn't really see a difference between sex workers and sexually active women. They just lumped them all in the same category. And they feared that the foreigners and the immigrants would take away their women. You know, <sighs> sounds familiar. hard to imagine. <laughs> hard to imagine. Um, you know, like politicians having these like totally skewed views of like immigrants and people from different places. But you know, hopefully in your mind you can uh, picture it, <laughs> uh, can fathom it in some way. So the journalists really fanned the flame with articles about poor, innocent girls getting kidnapped off the streets and being smuggled across the country. It didn't matter that they didn't have proof of this happening, because you don't need proof if you just believe in yourself hard enough, and then (laughs) other people will get on board. (laughs) Um... So James was able to use his connections to get his bill to Congress, and it made Congress look like they were doing something to address this crisis, quote unquote. Uh, They quickly passed the law and President William Howard Taft signed it into law that later that same month. So, you know, I just wonder if people had been just as worried about, you know, actual slavery, where there <laughs> was proof of this happening, how different things might have been. But, um, you know. Was slavery still happening then? No. Okay. I hope. I, I, was, I hope <laughs> not. Okay. But it wasn't that long ago at that point, you know? Yeah. In the early 1900s? Yeah. Closer than it was now. <laughs> Well, yes. <laughs> I'm just saying that people were, you know, look at look at what happened before when slavery was actually happening. Mm-hmm. There was like a whole war about it. And now imaginary slavery was happening. And they were like, <laughs> we must sign a law right away. How dare this happen? Yeah. Let's report all about it. And like, this is so wrong. It's so horrible. Yeah, um, I hear you. <laughs> it's kind of stupid. But... So the courts started using the law to criminalize a lot of consensual sexual activity. In fact, it was used for the political persecution of Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion boxer. So in 1913, Jack was convicted under the Mann Act for allegedly bringing a white woman across state lines for those immoral purposes. (laughs) 
Um, Jack was a controversial figure because he dared to be attracted to women that weren't black. Like, can you imagine? Shock. Natalie. <laughs> the horror. The horror. Um, so, you know, thank God they got him. But <laughs> so Jack was 35 and widowed when he met Lucille, a white woman who was 18 years old. She may have been a sex worker. It depends on which source you look at. Either way, you know, if it was something consensual that she was doing, I, you know, not up to anyone else to judge, in my opinion. But um, Lucille's mother was a big old racist, and she did not want to see her daughter with a black man. So she called the police and said that Jack had abducted her daughter, even though Lucille had said that she loved Jack and wanted to marry him. So the police used this to raid Jack's Chicago nightclub so they could search for these white slaves. And they also arrested Lucille so they could use her as a witness against Jack. So this case is kind of a two for one. We got like another woman arrest kind of snuck in there. But um, (laughs) so they were also worried that um, the police were worried that Lucille might marry Jack. Um, So that would obviously ruin their court case a little bit if, you know, that wouldn't necessarily make what they were doing super immoral. Um, So they let Elise or Elise, Lucille, um, they let Lucille go after only... um, Blah, blah, blah. I'm just starting over. They let Lucille go only after her mother promised to take her away from Chicago. But this didn't stop Lucille. She came back to the city and married Jack in a ceremony that took place in his home. The authorities no longer had a case, but they were able to find another woman to testify against him. So there was a second trial. Um, it was really fair. They had an all-white and all-male jury <laughs> Um, I love how you, you know, call, definitely judged. I love how you call a completely ridiculous like charge fair. Like, it was a fair trial. <laughs> it was a fair trial, Natalie, with a fair jury of his peers of all white men that definitely weren't racist at all. Solid. <laughs> um, and you know, Natalie, they spent a lot of time deliberating. Uh, this case, you know, they were really just really thoughtful about it. They spent a whole ninety minutes deliberating that's wow a lot of minutes 90 God. whole minutes can't believe they deciding the fate. their time for free you know it was quite generous although don't you get paid for jury duty i have no idea <laughs> i think you do I'm, but i'm either way i'm still very generous i'm black so i don't get called for jury duty <laughs> is that a thing probably <laughs> mm, that's not <laughs> I've never been called for jury duty. It kind of bumped me out. I haven't got called, but then they canceled it because of Corona. Really? Yeah. Sad. I'd be a great jury. I had a friend get called for jury duty and like the case and she was, we were in high school, but she like turned 18 earlier than everyone. And so she would like, when she was able to, she'd come to school and just tell us everything. And it was like a murder case. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. Keep going. That's illegal. (laughs) Yikes. Okay. Um, you know, and they were great jurors. They didn't tell anyone about the case because they had a whole 90 minutes, you know, deliberating. So <laughs> lots of time. Um, but so Jack was sentenced to one year and one day in jail. 
uh, Jack and Lucille was like, this is not cool. So they fled the country. They lived in Canada, Europe, South America, and Mexico until Jack surrendered to federal agents in 1920. So during the trial, which took place in Chicago, there were many protesters. They openly threatened Jack with a dummy hanging from a tree saying, this is what we will do for Jack Johnson. And a few weeks later in Texas, good old Texas, (laughs) they uh, told the prosecuting attorney that if he killed Jack, that they would put up $100,000 in his defense. And there was even a rumor that Jack had been assassinated and it was printed in several newspapers and um you know the newspapers were like we don't even know if he's still alive but when he was asked by a reporter about the rumor jack said do i look dead which (laughs) great response jack like (laughs) what who is that like mark twain that was like the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated or something i have no idea now you're making me feel dumb. I know nothing about Mark Whatever. Twain. That makes you smarter than me. Good job, Breach. I just, <laughs> you know, now I'm like, maybe it's not even Mark Twain. Hold on. <laughs> yes. Mark Twain. You were right. Okay. Whew. See? Phew. Okay. Getting back to the, to the, uh, the, the great story, um, all the racism. So um, this kind of brings it full circle. This was like a little tidbit that I didn't even know about. Honestly, I'm like way off track at this point. But um, it turns out that so Jack was on the run for a while, finally came back. And while he was at the Leavenworth federal prison they hosted a fight that took place after the prisoners ate Thanksgiving dinner. So it took place on Thanksgiving Day, which is, you know, just like the, the upcoming holiday. And an enormous crowd of about 2,000 people, including reporters, state officials, and other VIPs had gathered while a band of inmates played music in the background. Jack had been preparing for weeks for these fights. I think he did two in, in one day. And Lucille sent him armbands so he could pull against the horses so he could get in shape, which is great because i can't even like go outside to go for a run half the time because it's too cold but this man's like pulling horses so that's just neat um so people were really impressed with jack during this fight and they remarked that you know he still had it even though he'd been out of the game for for a little while and also was currently imprisoned um so As I'm wrapping up this tangent that, you know, got way off track from where I started, um, Donald Trump pardoned Jack Johnson in 2018. And so this is now the second time that Donald Trump was responsible for pardoning one of my subjects. And the other one was Susan B. Anthony. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Jack Johnson probably would not have been a huge fan of this pardon either, just like Susan B. Anthony was not a a fan of probably wouldn't have been a fan of her pardon anyway so that was a a long tangent but just interesting as i was reading through um and i think Mm -hmm. helps us get an understanding of the man act and kind of how terrible it was um 
So back to Alaska. Alaska was described as being a very refined woman. And for this reason, Alaska wasn't sought out to work on the more scandalous sex work related investigations, which is a little bit confusing because that's why she was hired in the first place. But Mm -hmm. then they were like, oh, no, she can't work on these cases that are too rough. Um, We respect her too much. (laughs) It's just it seems like a lot of these cases were kind of like made up anyway Mm -hmm. for you know racism but um so alaska had completed her training in new york and then she was sent to work in the washington dc office when she originally started working for the fbi she was 54 years old um she was married with a daughter named anna um so in my opinion that's really cool the first woman who worked for the fbi was older and you know married and she had a kid and you know people didn't think that that was not a reason that she could work for the fbi because i feel like they would make that excuse of like "Mm, well who's going to be watching your daughter you have a family to raise like come on you obviously can't do two things (laughs) although if she was 54 i wonder how old her daughter was at the time but whatever you know um who would make her husband dinner if she was working for the fbi that's so scary to think about um so we don't have records of her specific work duties but we do know how much she was paid a day how how many dollars do you think she was paid a day five close seven dollars a day (laughs) don't worry she got an extra four dollars if she was traveling oh my god so that's up to eleven dollars a day wow it's nothing to to shake your fist at wow great stuff um so when j edgar hoover became the acting director of the fbi in 1924 alaska's term was cut short there was a lot of bad press in the federal government because of the teapot dome scandal you heard of the teapot dome scandal no i feel like i don't know like oh this along with the man act i'm like i don't know if they didn't teach this stuff to us or if i just forgot it no they definitely did not teach that to me the teapot dome scandal was also known as the oil reserve scandal and um so there was some secret leasing of federal oil reserves in california and wyoming Um, And this resulted in the first member of the president's cabinet to be arrested while in office. And while this sounds shocking, you know, because now we're pretty (laughs) used to people in the president's cabinet being criminals, (laughs) um, this was pretty shocking uh, at the time. So Hoover wanted to streamline the work of the Bureau so that he could root out any corruption. And each field was encouraged to fire unqualified agents. And it wasn't a secret that Hoover didn't think women were fit to be special agents. So Alaska resigned in June of 1924, but she wasn't the only woman who was forced to quit. In 1923, Jessie Duckstein, she was the second female special agent to be hired. Um, and she worked in the Washington, D.C. office as well. She was also forced to resign. Um, but there was another woman who I would like love to know more about this, but I 
truly could not find anything. Her name was Lenore Houston. She had been hired in 1924, um, but she had actually been hired by Hoover himself, which kind of contradicts the idea before of him saying that women can't be agents, Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, She made $31,000 a year and always received wonderful performance reviews. But she resigned in 1928 after she was transferred to the Washington field office. Um, So there wasn't much information about why this happened, but apparently Lenore was put in a mental institution in 1930 and threatened to shoot Hoover if she was ever released. Wow. So I feel like there's like a lot more. That we don't know. (laughs) That. I wonder if it was like totally justified that she said she wanted to shoot Hoover. (laughs) I I just don't know. I, I don't interesting stuff though Mm. um so after all of that another woman would not be hired in the fbi until 1972 after the equal employment opportunity act was passed and that's the story of the first few fbi agents and also jack johnson and lucille cameron and the man act and the teapot (laughs) i hope that i know it 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 was a lot to cover, but it was actually, like, such a short case that I, I hope I made up for some of those things with some uh, just uh, random bits of history there. I think we learned a lot. Um, her being the first female FBI agent, obviously super commendable. Um, and it's actually kind of similar to the person that I did, which is kind of cool. Um, mm. But, yeah. Cool. Alaska. <laughs> What a uh, what a cool person. <laughs> I wish I wish I knew more about you, Alaska, but that was that was all she wrote. In the mid 1800s, a young widow walked into the Pinkerton Detective Agency in Chicago, Illinois, after seeing an advertisement in a local newspaper. Founded by Alan Pinkerton, the Pinkerton Detective Agency was exactly what it sounds like, an agency formed to investigate crimes like counterfeiting, train robberies, and other types of sinister trouble that people of the 1850s got into to occupy their time. When this young woman walked into his agency, being a product of the times and the patriarchy, Alan Pinkerton thought she was there looking for work as a secretary. To his surprise, Kate Warren was actually there to be a detective. Um, According to the Pinkerton Company records, Alan Pinkerton responded, it is not the custom to employ women as detectives. And in a true 1850s glass ceilings are meant to be shattered fashion, Kate responded by arguing her point of view clearly and directly. She pointed out that women could be, quote, useful in warming out secrets in many places, which would be impossible for a male detective. She explained that unlike male detectives, a woman could befriend the wives and girlfriends of suspects to gain their confidence, Um, which I think, you know, like, has the implication that only men commit crimes which i'm like come on um uh yeah women <laughs> commit crimes too it's women literally why our podcast is in business <laughs> oh yeah i didn't even think about that um, but that was really smart of her yeah. to to do that angle and that makes me think about now of like women are i think 
very it's just the whole true crime phenomenon i think like um women have always really been interested in like detectives and mysteries but like nowadays we're all like obsessed with (laughs) true crime and like i if i ever get murdered i would love for you know a a podcaster to be on the case because i i feel like i really trust them to to solve my murder hopefully that doesn't happen dear everyone please don't murder rachel i can't find another co-host okay thanks (laughs) (laughs) no oh wait but no i've been reading um i'll be gone in the dark by michelle mcnarma and her investigative work is just amazing i'm like you should have been a police officer for sure (laughs) it's Um, a great book good on her um so another uh part of kate's argument was that women have an eye for detail that seemingly escaped men at the time um which also kind of sexist to say but whatever um oh i I was gonna say that's really true yeah no more or less probably is but you know (laughs) you know you know she had no evidence to back it differs from person to person but also yeah (laughs) there are things that like evan will be wearing like a navy blue shirt and black pants and then like brown shoes and i'm just like what are you doing with your life Um, can you not tell that that's not black (laughs) and black and um yeah no i get that um so that all of that was Okay, so her argument was solid enough for Alan Pinkerton to do the unthinkable. He hired her as the first woman detective to ever exist in this here United States of America. (laughs) Wow. I just love how it wrote that. (laughs) Groundbreaking. So she like, you know, paved the way for your person to exist. (laughs) Yes. Wait, when did this when did this take place? The 1850s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's pretty old. (laughs) Um, So in 1858, Kate was part of her first investigation as a detective. It was a case of embezzlement embezzlement involving a freight and cargo transport business called the Adams Express Company. Fun fact, the Adams Express Company is now a publicly traded equity fund, which really speaks to exactly how generational generational wealth is in this country. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, as I said, the case involved, um, yeah, the case involved like embezzlement. And so at the center of it was a man named Nathan Maroney. Um, who was suspected of embezzling funds. He was an express man in Montgomery, Alabama, who stole $50,000 from the company, which, again, because we both love inflationcalculator.com or whatever it's called, um, I looked at what that would be today, and that would be $1,587,731.71. Like, Holy wow. cow, that is very so i realized now i forgot to look up the inflation on uh alaska salaries <laughs> yeah okay um Not, i don't know how much that would be i'll look maybe it up like, while you're talking maybe <laughs> i'm gonna guess like maybe a hundred dollars let's say seven dollars in what did i say like the 19 like 1910s that's when the act thing was, right? Yes. Yeah. We'll say 1915, just to be safe. 
Um, one hundred seventy-eight dollars. Hey, I was in the ballpark. actually. They paid her really well. Hey everyone, this is where Rachel's audio stopped recording. So, you just had me. <laughs> Sorry. And so Kate was able to befriend the wife of Nathan Maroney, gaining her trust while gathering useful evidence that Kate and the detective agency were able to use against Mr. Maroney, which eventually led to his conviction. In addition, she was able to recover over $39,000 of the the stolen funds. And so Kate proved that she had the chops. By 1860, Alan Pinkerton had created a new female detective bureau within the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And at the helm was Kate Warren. And so she has like a lot of kind of cool cases um, that I could go over, but I want to go over one that is called the Baltimore Plot, which is probably her most um, significant um, case that she was a part of. And so in the 1860s, whispers of slavery, abolition, and secession were, began to spread like wildfire. The election of Abraham Lincoln only fueled the fire and contributed to the rising tension. Lincoln himself was receiving nearly daily death threats, but which were credible and which were just angry people saying angry things with no intention of acting on them. Um, So Alan Pinkerton, a Scot by birth, held very strong abolitionist views. So with his support, Kate and four other agents dispatched to investigate secessionist threats against the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore railroads. Um, Basically, uh, seeing any threats to um, possibly harm Lincoln as he was using any of these railways to, like, travel. Um, And so comparing the field notes of the agents, Alan Pinkerton believed that Kate and the other other agents were on to something much bigger than frustrated citizens. They believed that there was a plot to assassinate President-elect Abraham Lincoln in Baltimore while he was en route to his inauguration. People were just coming for him. So like Rose Mackenberg, who was the person that I did, um, who would work as part of Harry Houdini's Secret Service decades later, Kate Warren was a master of disguise and hiding in plain sight. So much So that according to one source, there apparently are no official photographs of her, although there is like a Pinkerton website and there is a picture of her there. So I don't know if it's real. I don't know. I didn't meet her. Uh, So to learn more about this Baltimore plot to kill Lincoln before his inauguration, Kate put those skills to work and assumed several aliases, including Mrs. Barley and Mrs. Cherry, and pretended to be a rich Southern lady with a thick Southern accent and a secessionist sympathizer. And so in doing so, Kate was able to successfully confirm that the Baltimore plot was in fact real. She was also able to unearth the details of the plot. Kate found out that the plan was to ambush Lincoln at Baltimore's Calvert Street Railroad Station. A diversion was set. A fake brawl was going to break out to distract the police officers and rail station guards. Lincoln would more or less be a sitting duck for the secessionist assassination attack. 
Um, and so the Pinkerton Detective Agency now had to hatch a plan to get the president-elect to Washington, D.C. unscathed. Lincoln refused to cancel any engagements that he had scheduled, which made creating a plan a little difficult for Allen and Kate. Not to mention it was Abe Lincoln. He was tall and pretty distinct, so he had no problem standing out in a crowd. So Kate Allen and Ward Hill Lehman, Lamont, not sure, um, he was Abraham's Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's bodyguard, described old Abe, young Abe. I have no idea how he was when, how old he was when he was president, but they disguised Abe as an invalid and Kate posed as his sister. They traveled from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, to Baltimore, to Washington, D.C. without detection. Without Kate's expert detective work, um, uncovering and eluding the Baltimore plot would not have happened. Throughout their travels from Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C., Kate never slept, instead watching over Abraham Lincoln the entire time to make sure no, car no harm came to him. Legend has it that this detail is what inspired the Pinkerton Detective Agency's famous motto, We Never Sleep. Um... And so throughout and after the Civil War, Kate continued her detective work. She established an intelligence base in Cincinnati, Ohio, worked as a spy, and trained new female detectives as Pinkerton's supervisor of female agents. Whenever Alan Pinkerton would hire a new female detective trainee, he would tell them, quote, in my, in my service, you will serve your country better than on the field. If you agree to come aboard, you will go in training with the head of my female detectives, Kate Warren. She has never let me down. End quote. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, Kate's life and work were cut short when she fell ill with a lung infection in 1868, dying soon after at the age of 34 or 35. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.